North Boulevard, Lord, rain in me. You can maybe stop some of the rain now if you'd like in us. <laughs> I'm glad you're with us. Those of you online, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's spring break in Murfreesboro, so the crowd's down a little bit, but still a great crowd and awesome, awesome singing. Let's just jump right into Deuteronomy chapter 14, and we'll stop, start with this. So in the year 2000 in Austin, Texas, there was a uh, local librarian who called in to, uh, I think it's KWOP, so it was a radio program. They were raising money for uh, some kind of a charity. This librarian calls in and offers to give some money, and the DJ, just, you know, to make it a little more entertaining, asks him the question, so why are you giving to this cause? The librarian stuttered. He had his reasons, but he hadn't really thought about expressing them. And for a moment, he waited, and finally he said, well, I guess I'm giving to keep Austin weird. And that actually became a marketing strategy for the city of Austin, Texas, so successful that now numerous cities also use that phrase, Portland, Oregon, and other places, Seattle, Washington, keep Austin weird. If you're from Texas, you probably would say, well, in fact, they are weird. It's a blue city in the middle of a red state, and they have all sorts of weird public displays. I won't even try to go through them, but there are things like frog jumping contests, and speakeasies and all sorts of things. But here's the thing that captures my attention. The people of Austin, Texas like being weird. Let that sink in. They like to be weird. Like there's some badge of honor that we're not like the other Texans. We're, we're our own people. We're unique. It got me started thinking about how many people belong to a club or association or fans of a sports team who are weird and they like it. So there are actually associations such as this. There's the National Pasta Association, and they're proud to be part of it. The Harry Potter Society, the Association for Salad Dressings and Sauces. I'm a proud member of that one. And then there are the sports teams. So these people are actually proud to come out looking like this. This, by the way, is a Titans fan. How could you even watch a ball game dressed like that? I don't quite get it. This one makes no sense to me or anyone else. Y'all know that our own Sean is a cheese head? Yeah. And then there's this guy. So he's arguing with somebody. And I just want to say, if you've got a watermelon on your head, you've already lost the argument. Like, I stop right there. In every case, they're proud to be weird. That's my point. Proud to be weird. First hmm. Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And Hebrews 12 and verse 14, without holiness, nobody will see God. So here's the slogan for today's sermon. Keep the church weird. Keep it holy. Because we live in a time where many people have lost the concept of holiness, and therefore they no longer can appreciate the beauty of holiness, the truthfulness of holiness, and the power of holiness. Like our world desperately needs to believe, see, to be able to see a holy people who are proud of the fact that they teach and practice one man and one woman coming together in a lifelong commitment of marriage where every child gets the unique blessing that only a father can offer and only a mother can offer. I'm proud of that. I'm not ashamed of that. I say keep it weird. 
The church needs to be able to look at a group. The world needs to be able to look at a group, the church, that when they think about money, sure they do. They work hard. So in a lot of economies, they do well financially. But then they take those resources and they do awesome things for humanity. The world needs to be able to see that they're the people who think that kind of way. Stay weird. We need to continue to be weird. The world needs to be able to see that there are people who have struggled with addictions or hurts or bad habits in the past. They come together, they hand it over to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they overcome it. The world needs to see that. That's holiness. Keep the church weird. Keep it holy. The world needs to be able to look at us and say, well, they're not like we are. They're different from us. And so the Bible has a lot to say about this concept of holiness. Here's a cluster of words that are often associated with holiness. In fact, in some cases, they are the same word, just one from a German background, heilig from, for holy, and one from a Latin background, sanctus. But they're the same word. Over 600 times the Bible uses a variation of the term holy or holiness because it matters. In the original pages of Scripture, in the earliest pages, the holiness of God essentially is nothing other than God's other worldly powers and perfections. Think of God like a tornado. So we had tornado watches and warnings in Middle Tennessee over the last couple of days, and they're, they're frightening suddenly to, to be confronted with this enormous amount of power. That's one reason why in Scripture, the holiness of God is often associated with things like fire, terror. The holiness of God is often associated with blood and with death because God is an awesome, powerful, untamable God otherworldly, more powerful than all the powers we have ever experienced combined with more perfections than we could ever imagine. And since God is holy, what he says to his church is this, I want you no longer to conform to the pagan world around you. Don't be like the other cities. I want you to be holy in all you do. Stay weird. I called you to be weird, he says. I didn't call you to be normal. I didn't call you to be like pagans. I got plenty of pagans. I need people who are different from pagans. I need people who are, he says, holy. And so there are two directions in this concept of holiness. You see them here. One of them is nonconformity, and the other one is a commitment to do it God's way. So if you're filling out blanks, which you can do online, you can also do it in person on the paper blanks, there are two things that make an action, a place, a time, or a person holy. One of them is separating yourself from the pagan way of doing it. The other one is uniting yourself with the Lord God in His way. That's what holiness means. And I do want you to understand, the Bible's very serious about holiness. So here in Exodus 20, 22 verse 20, the Lord says, if you worship any other God, it's a death sentence. That's how serious God was in the Hebrew Scriptures. Here's one, Leviticus chapter 10. So the high priest's two sons went to offer a sacrifice to God, and they used a kind of fire that God had not ordained. He burned them both alive. And the, the dad, so if you imagine both your sons dying in a fire because they used the wrong kind of matches that God had not told them to use, the dad gets upset, and Moses goes to him, he says, here's what, here's what God said. God said, when you come to me, I'm going to prove that I am holy, and you will honor me. I just want you to hear how heavy holiness is because North Americans don't have a very deep view of holiness. 
North Americans have this idea that everything is open for jokes or ridicule. There's nothing sacred. You need to know you worship a sacred, awesome, and holy God, and he will not be trifled with. He will hold us accountable for what we do and what we say. One last illustration. So 1 Samuel 6, the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant. It was, uh, when they did, they got a, a disease. You can go back and read about it. It's kind of an interesting disease. They got a disease. And so they said, maybe we don't want to keep this Ark anymore. So they put it on a cart as, and the cart started walking back towards Hebron, where at that point the capital was. It passed through the city of Beth Shemesh. And as it passed through the city of Beth Shemesh, some of the people opened it up and said, hey, what's in here? And 70 of them died for looking in there. And here's what they said. They said, who can stand in the presence of a God this holy? What I want you to see is that if you trifle with God's holiness, you are playing with fire. Now, that matters in a culture that does not have a sense of the sacred. But you do. Because you've kept the church weird. I mean, you have. You're the, you're the oddballs. You're the ones who still believe in telling the truth. You're the ones who still believe in such a thing as sexual holiness. You're the ones who still believe that we work hard and we practice integrity. You're the ones who, even when marriage isn't always what you want it to be, you stay faithful. That's who you are because we're keeping the people of God holy. We're going to stay Weird. And that's what our text is about today. It is a text about three things. You will not see the connection between these when I first mentioned them. It's about cutting yourself, eating shrimp, and how much money you give. But they're all grounded in the same principle, which is, I want everything you do to be holy. So, let's read the first couple of verses of Deuteronomy 14. It's not a very long chapter, and I can move pretty quickly through sections of it. But let's start with the first two verses, where the Lord says, speaking through Moses, you are the children of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead, for you are a people. This is the operative term throughout the whole chapter. This is what God's concerned about. You are a people. You are a weird people. Stay weird. You are a holy people. To the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. So the first thing that ought to jump off is what's this about cutting yourself? We read in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 28 that one of the customs of the Canaanite pagans was when they worshiped, they would cut themselves. They wanted blood. And so the Lord says, you're not going to be like the pagans. You don't cut yourself when you worship me. In fact, I want to take it one step further because this will come up a little bit later. In Leviticus 17, we get a theology of blood. Now, in the New Testament, for those of us who are Christians, we're used to hearing about blood because the blood of Jesus atones us from our sins. So, we talk a lot about blood. We'll have communion here in a few moments, and it's a celebration of blood. Why blood? And the answer is found in Leviticus 17. The life of a creature is in its blood. So, God has a lot to say about blood, and the short answer is blood is holy. Because in blood is found life. And human life is designed after the image of God. So you don't mess with blood. And that's one reason why you don't cut yourself. Make sense? You'll see a little bit more about blood here as we go into the next subject, which is kosher eating, starting at verse 3. Now, we're going to read quickly from verse 3 almost to the end of the chapter. So let me set you up. What is kosher eating? So, uh, those of you who are Jewish probably already know this. I hope you do. And those of you who are Gentile, you, you know Jews. You know something about kosher eating. The word kosher just means according to the plan or something similar to that. 
So Jews have, for no fewer than 3,000 years, had a certain restricted diet that they are to honor three times a day or as many times as you eat. By the way, I just want to pause and say, if you have a very restricted diet, it makes you a different kind of person. It makes you weird in a good way. Like every time a Jew sits down at the table, they have to remember the fact, I'm a Jew. Every time they sit at the table. Like I don't think, every time I sit at the table, I don't think, oh, I'm a Christian. I just eat my, you know, my barbecue and enjoy it. I don't think about the fact that I'm a Christian. But if you're Jewish, you have to think about it every day. I'm a, I'm a Jew. This is how I have to eat. So what is going on in kosher eating? There are some basic principles that you're about to see. Let me just flesh those out real quickly. What's going on in kosher eating is that God wants the Jews to eat, here you go, here's the phrase, the idealized form of every life uh, that, they, that they might eat. So he's wanting them to find the idealized form. So I don't want you to eat the common vulgar stuff. I want you to eat the idealized form. And by idealized, we mean really spiritually idealized. So for example, land animals. You can eat land animals, but they must have split hooves and they must chew the cud. If they do one or the other or neither, you can't eat them. They're not kosher. So that's the idealized animal. It does it all. For the aquatic animals, fish, they must have scales and they must have fins. So you can have perch, you can't have catfish because catfish has fins, but it doesn't have scales. So what God is arguing is not that there's something dirty about catfish. What he's arguing is, you're my people. I want you to be weird. I want you to eat the highest idealized form of every animal group when it comes to birds. You can eat birds, but they have to have two legs and they have to be air-dominant birds. In other words, you can't eat a bird that doesn't fly. Then he offers just a few other things. Life is in the blood. No blood. Do not eat blood. And don't eat birds that eat blood. So eagles, falcons, hawks, all that, storks, they're all out because they eat blood. Then he says you can't eat anything that's been strangled or was already dead when you found it because you have no idea how it died. And then lastly, and we'll come to this in just a moment, you can't eat an animal that's been cooked in its mother's milk. So kosher food, essentially at the end of the day, is the idealized form of each class of animals. And that means it is a form of holiness. Everybody see? So Austin is thank, they're thankful that they're weird. Israel is encouraged, be thankful that you're holy. Act holy. Your food should be holy. When you worship, it should be holy. Your money should be holy. He's just going to go through a whole list of things that need to be holy because God wants the church to be. Y'all just say it with me. What do you want the church to be? We use a W word first. It's hard to say, isn't it? Because you don't want to be weird. Say it with me. God wants the church to be weird. He wants us to be holy. He doesn't want us to look like the world around us. He needs a people who are so different that the whole world pauses, stops, and says, what's going on there? Why are they like that? Now, let's read our text, beginning at verse 3. Do not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals you may eat. So, you'll notice they all have cloven hooves and they chew the cud. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, the mountain sheep. You may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. However, of those that chew the cud or have a divided hoof, you may not eat the camel, the rabbit, or the hyrax. By the way, here's a hyrax. It's, it's kind of like a, a hamster. It's a Middle Eastern hamster. He says, no snacking on the hyrax. You can't eat this because even though it looks like it's chewing the cud, 
It doesn't have a divided hoof. So they're ceremonially unclean to you. Then verse 8, the pig is also unclean. No slick pig. This pig is also unclean, although it has a divided hoof, it does not chew the cud. What's he arguing? He's saying, I want you only to eat the idealized form of every animal because I want you to be weird. I want my people different from the pagans. You're not to eat the meat or touch the carcasses. Of all the creatures living in the water, you may eat of any that has fins and scales. But anything that does not have fins and scales, you may not eat. It's unclean clean. You may eat any clean bird, but these you may not eat. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, the black kite, any kind of falcon. By the way, the kite is what we would call a small hawk in the Middle East. You can't eat a raven. You can't eat the horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk. A little owl, a great owl, a white owl, the desert owl, the osprey, the cormorant. By the way, I didn't know what a cormorant was. I had to look it up. It's a water bird that eats fish, so it eats blood, so you can't eat it. The stork, any kind of heron, the, uh, the uh, hoopoe, or the bat. By the way, by now, we know don't eat bats, right? Heron, the picture of a heron, a heron's unclean because he eats live animals, that is, he's a bird of prey. All flying insects are unclean to you, do not eat them. By the way, Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 22 makes one exception to the insect. You can eat a locust. And by the way, most of us were like, why would you do something like that? Well, the answer is because locusts are actually a, 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 it's a delicacy in some places, not every place, but in some places, they actually, they're roasted or they're boiled and then roasted, and uh, they will cover them with chocolate or honey or all sorts of things and, and put them on a stick, and, and they're pretty tasty. So why would God allow a locust to be eaten when he says no insects? And the answer is, when the locust comes in, he appears to have two legs, and he looks like he's flying like a bird. So locusts are actually accepted in the book of Leviticus. Any winged creature that is clean, you may eat. Do not eat anything you find already dead. So, by the way, when, uh, I have to tell you this. When we were living in Kansas City, um, the, Midwest, the Midwest makes fun of the South, which I don't really quite understand that. Those of you in the Midwest, like, hello, you are the Midwest, you know. Um, you're a flyover country anyway. But uh, as a joke, I forget we have people in the Midwest watching. Uh, so, when Julie and I were living in Kansas City, like, they would make fun of us because we're from the South. And about once a year, there was some really embarrassing news story that came out of Tennessee that just sort of reinforced all of that stuff. So one year we're living there and this news story comes to Kansas City that the state of Tennessee has passed a law that is no longer legal to eat roadkill in Tennessee. Okay, like that doesn't really make you look all that good when you're a Tennessean. So we were being ribbed about that and I was happy to announce that that's true, but you can drag the carcass across the state line in Alabama and you can eat it there. So I'm just saying... <laughs> In this text, you don't eat anything that's already dead. You may, not, you may give it to a foreigner residing in your towns. By the way, he's not suggesting that foreigners are, are vulgar, bad people. He's just saying, no, I want you to be weird. I don't, I'm not asking the foreigner to be weird, but I'm asking you to be weird. You may sell it to the foreigner, but you are people holy to the Lord your God. And then he finishes with this one, which is a really odd one. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. This is the one kosher law nobody understands its purpose. Maybe it's an anti-cruelty law. Could be. Maybe the Canaanite pagans were practicing this and God says, I don't want you to look like them. We don't really know what's behind this law. We just know that you're not supposed to mix 
the meat of a goat and any product that's from the milk of a goat. And so Orthodox Jews actually take this to mean that you cannot have meat or a milk product, a dairy product in the same meal. That's one of the staples of kosher eating. So if you ever, if you'll notice that like Jews won't have a bacon and cereal because that's mixing milk with meat. You can't do that. They wouldn't have bacon anyway because it's pork. But here's what it means. Kosher food means goodbye casseroles. All those meat and cheese casseroles, they're not kosher. I was down in Belo Horizonte a couple of years ago, and I was eating with a, big, a group of Gentiles, and there was a group of Jews there as well. And normally I'm savvy enough not to order a casserole, but that day I ordered lasagna, not thinking. I'm sitting there eating my lasagna when it dawns on me. I'm sitting with Orthodox Jews. You know, it's like eating cockroaches in front of them. And one of them's staring at me, and he finally mutters to me, he says, you Gentiles are never so happy as to when you're eating your meat and cheese, like that. And like, I've never forgot that. I was like, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to. Anyway, uh, so what, what's going on with all this kosher, and what does it mean for the Christian? Well, we've talked about how Christians read the Old Testament. Remember, Christians bring the Old Testament to Jesus, and Jesus gives us the proper interpretation of the Old Testament. And what does Jesus say? Jesus keeps the law of holiness. In fact, he strengthens the law of holiness. But he does say it's no longer based on what you eat. So watch this in Mark chapter 7. Jesus says, these are quotations from Jesus. He'd just gotten into an argument with the Pharisees about how you're supposed to wash your hands in order to be ceremonial or clean. He says, look, nothing outside a person can defile them by going in. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. And Mark puts his commentary in, Jesus thus declared all foods clean. So the kosher laws are still a gift. I, I, I want to make sure I say this well. Kosher eating is still a gift. If you're Jewish, it's still a gift from God. If you're not Jewish, my son for a stretch only ate kosher. It's still a gift from God, but it is not a means of rightness and it's not expected. God doesn't expect you to do it. In fact, I do, I do want to make sure you get it. When Jesus says there are things that make you unclean, he describes them. He says, here's what makes you unclean, not eating a falcon. That's not what makes you unclean. What makes you unclean is sexual sin. It's what comes out of you. Not what goes in, but what comes out. Theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness. So when you go on spring break this week and you put on those really, really tiny uh, swimsuits, Jesus says, that's what's making you unclean. That's the uncleanness now. That's unholy. That's you being like the pagans. That's what he says. That's you being like the pagans. When you slander each other, when you're arrogant, when you're a fool, those are the things that make you unholy now. So again, it's not as though holiness goes away with Jesus. It's that Jesus rightly identifies the seed of holiness as the heart, not the stomach. And so even in Acts chapter 10, the question comes up, what are we going to do about all these Gentiles? And God gives Peter a vision where there's a sheet, like a bed sheet. It's got all these animals in it. And God says to Peter, go kill an animal and eat. And Peter says, no, I don't eat unclean food. And you know what God said? Hey, don't you call what I called clean. Don't you call it unclean. And so God declares all food clean with a couple of exceptions that I'd be derelict if I didn't mention. Two of them here. In Acts 15, when Gentiles and Jews were first starting to come together, there was a big question, what are we going to do about these Gentiles and all that garbage they eat? I mean, it was really offensive to the Jews. They have a potluck and these Gentiles will bring pig in. And finally they met and they said, we can't put any burden on the Gentiles except this. Don't eat food that's been sacrificed to an idol. Don't eat blood. 
And if you see a dead animal, don't eat it. This one I want to mention, meat sacrificed to idols, because it, co- it comes into the New Testament several times. In the ancient world, if you wanted to offer a cow, I mean, excuse me, if you wanted to eat your cow, if you're going to butcher it and eat it, first you would offer it to a god, give a little piece to the temple, and then you could eat the rest of the cow or sell the meat if you wanted to. That was a real problem for Christians because I went to buy my beef and I saw that it had just been offered to Apollo right up here on the hill. Can I eat it or not? Because if I buy it, who am I funding? I'm funding the temple of Apollo. So Christians were having to wrestle with this. When we get to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation says, don't buy it. Stay away from it. And, and even in, uh, here, there's an image of, this is the temple of Apollo here. These are the meat markets that remain in Corinth even to this day. So you can actually see that meat was just offered to that demon up there. Can I buy it or not? The New Testament says, God declares all foods clean except blood and food that has been sacrificed to idols. All right, enough on that. So that's kosher food. And the whole concept of kosher food, let's make sure we get it right, is what? It's to keep the people of God weird. He wants us to be different from the rest of the world. He wants us to be holy. He wants the world to be able to look at us and say, wow, they're the idealized version of humanity. Look at their families. Look at how they forgive. Look at how they refuse to carry these burdens. That's what God wants out of us. That's holiness. Now, let's finish up our uh, text. So, verse 22, down to the end, we get to the third uh, idea that's developed here, and that is the idea of what you do with your finances. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all your field's uh, produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain. I just want to pause and make sure you understand, when you give a tenth, you get to enjoy part of it. There's great joy in giving, by the way. All the giving that you guys do at North Boulevard, you get to enjoy the fruit of your own giving. So you bring a tithe to God, but you get to eat some of it. So he says, uh, eat the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your olive oil, you're the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. So God picks a certain place. He doesn't want everybody just inventing their own worship out in the country. He picks one town. First it's Shiloh and then it's Jerusalem ultimately after that. If that place is too distant and you've been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is too far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. So let's say you have a whole lot of animals and you live a hundred miles away from Jerusalem. He says, sell the animals, take the silver. When you get to Jerusalem, buy more animals and offer them. It's God's way of saying, I'm not trying to create a burden. It ought to be a joy for you. It ought to be a joy. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and what? And rejoice. Generosity is a source of great joy, unless you're a stingy person. And do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. So Levites were the preachers of their day. Everyone got a plot of land when they got into the uh, promised land except the Levites. They were the ministers, and they didn't get land. So they had to live off of the offerings of the other people, and in exchange they taught Israel the law of God, similar to how preachers are today. So half funny, half not funny, but we do. We live off your largesse. We live off your gifts, and God says don't forget them. 
Make sure they're taken care of. He goes on to say at the end of every three years, bring all the tithes that your years produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the foreigners and the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. And so the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of your hands. So his final instructions give a tenth and every three years, the tenth goes to the Levites and to the needy among you. I don't want to miss what he says. It also goes to the foreigners. God cares about the immigrant. He cares. Now, just to summarize what's happening with giving here. Every year, Israel was to give a tenth of everything they got. Every year, they also made sacrifices, vows, thanksgiving offerings, and alms. So they had to leave, for example, the corners of all their fields unharvested for the poor. When you add this up, the average Israelite gave about 30% of what he or she made to God every year. In years three and six, all of their offerings went to the Levites and to the needy. And then this beautiful thing we'll get to in the very next chapter on Easter Sunday, every seventh year, they canceled all debts. I mean, that's really kind of a beautiful concept, isn't it? That no matter how much in debt you got, every seven years, Every credit card statement was torn up and you got to reset. And then, one of the most beautiful concepts in the Old Testament, every 50th year, there was a total reset of Israel. Every 50th year, every debt was canceled. Every slave or prisoner was set free. Every 50 years, all property returned to its original owner. And every 50 years, the land got to lay fallow. It was God's way of saying, we're just going to be constantly renewing the people of Israel. By the way, here's the sad thing. All that we've read about obedience in the book of Deuteronomy, they, they didn't obey. All these beautiful things never happened. We have no record that they ever celebrated the year of Jubilee. It never happened because they wouldn't obey. They would not stay weird. So there are two directions of holiness. You refuse to conform to the ways around you, and instead you practice the ways of God. Ask yourself the question. Here are the important questions. How can I separate whatever I'm doing? How can I separate it from the ordinary or the, uh, the profane, if you will, the, the pagan way of doing it. And second, how can I unite it with God? So I've listed several areas of life ever since we started this series. Here's one. How can I make sure my spirituality is not the spirituality of pagans around me, but it's instead devoted to God? My body and my mind, how can I make sure that my body is being used, not the way pagans use their bodies, but in such a way that unites it with the Lord my God? My spouse and my family, how can I love my wife in a way that honors God? Not the way pagans do it, the way God has called me to do it. Or create a home that reflects the beauty of Christ and the church. How can I do that? Not looking like the pagan world around me, but being weird, being holy. How about my money and my career, my work? How can I work in such a way or treat my money in such a way that shows integrity and honesty hard work, where my money is used for the things of God and not selfishly squandered on all my latest toys and all my ambitions and all my desires. How about my friends and neighbors? Is there a way to look at my neighbor as an opportunity for holiness? How about this one? How about society and culture? How about the way I look at my government? Is there a way to look at my government that's not profane, that's not vulgar, but instead I look at it as somehow uh, capable of being treated with holiness? 
And then last, leisure and entertainment. How can my entertainment look different from that of the world? How can I be weird with my entertainment? How can I stay weird? Because that's really what God's calling us to do. And I have to end on this because this is how Moses ends. He ends by talking about our tithes. Let me just give you a few principles about this, and then I'm going to wrap it up. Deuteronomy 10:14. we saw this. The Lord says, everything on earth belongs to me. So when Moses talks about tithing, the starting point for understanding a Christian view of money is the recognition that everything I have, everything you have belongs to God. It's not yours, and it was never yours. Everything belongs to God. And since everything belongs to God, I'm going to move quickly here, I'm only a manager of God's funds. When I learned that lesson some years ago, I, I think it was some of our members who, it may have been Randall Matlock who actually used that phrase with me one time, and it sunk in. I'm just a fund manager for God's resources. Now, I've got some investments, and so I have people who manage my funds, and here's what I know. They will take a percentage of the funds they manage. I'm glad for them to do that. That's part of their pay. But I don't want them taking all my money and spending it on them. And in the same way, if I'm a manager of God's resources, God's money, God's funds, he didn't give it to me to spend all on me. He gave it to me so that I could use it in some way to increase his kingdom. And then there's this text, Hebrews 13 and verse 5. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content. So, if I am to learn to handle money the way God wants me to, I will never love my stuff, my toys. I will learn to be content with what I have, whether I'm rich or whether I'm poor. I can learn contentment. And then there's this principle. So, in Genesis 14 and verse 20, Abram has gone and rescued Lot, who was captured uh, with his uh, family. Abraham is coming back home and he stops in Jerusalem and he offers a tithe. He offers a tenth of everything he has to God. You know why I want to show you this first? Because this is before the law of Moses. In other words, before the Old Testament ever commanded the tithe, people were already tithing. I'm saying that because though the New Testament does not command us to tithe, tithing is a universal standard in the Bible. That is, the Bible expects us to give no less than 10%. That's a universal standard in the Bible. It's not that you're sinning if you don't, but if you're not tithing, you're not living up to the ideal in Scripture. So I would encourage you, give 10% of what you make. If you're at 3% this year and you can't just suddenly increase to 10, go to 4% next year. Go up a percent till you get to 10. And when you get to 10, that doesn't include the gifts and the alms and all the other things. God gave me these resources so I could do, use them for his glory. And then let's wrap it up here. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, when you give, other people will be affected. God will use a generous giver to change the world. I, I just, I even wrote it down, but I'm out of time, so I'm not going to read it. But just think of all the ways that generosity has affected your life. You remember in the, in the sacrifices, he says, you'll offer your sacrifice and you get to eat them and enjoy them too. North Boulevard was founded in 1947 by generous people who said, let's start a church over on the other side of the city. Someone's generosity has made us comfortable. Those of you who are online, we probably spent close to $400,000 setting the auditorium up, getting the equipment, all the television stuff, all the things that had to go in, sound system, all that. We didn't get that money from the government. 
some generous person gave it, and now you get to enjoy an online service. Our West Campus probably will have a spring break, so it'll be down. Last week, they had almost 300 people at West Campus because somebody said, here, I'll give. I'll give to that. In the last two years, we've planted 150 churches because somebody said, let me give to that. Our inner city ministry started in 1994. Kim Bogle came in. North Boulevard got behind it, but there's so many individuals said, hey, I want to give to that as well. And in each case, the generosity of somebody blessed the lives of many people. I just want us to see. We have an opportunity to use our money in such a way that we stay weird. We stay holy. Even a dollar can be made holy when it's used in the service of God. My dad is uh, 86, I think. Daddy, you text me and tell me this afternoon. Don't call, just text. That's a joke. He, two years ago, Daddy gave me his daddy's Bible. It's got my granddaddy, Joseph Edward Young's name in it. He got, my granddaddy got the Bible in 1958. And he's written his favorite verses in there. One of them, by the way, is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31, the blessings. So Daddy said, I want you to have this, son. Granddaddy... Uh, we were never rich. The Youngs have never been a rich family. Granddaddy was a very simple man, lived in uh, all his life in Florence, South Carolina, uh, except for when he was a World War I doughboy, where he met his future wife um, in south, the south of England. He came home and he just had an ordinary life, uh, never a wealthy man. But when Daddy gave me the Bible, I was just thumbing through it, you know, honored to get it, and I saw a dollar bill, and I said, Daddy, there's a dollar bill in it. He said, no, the dollar bill stays in the Bible. I don't, know, I don't know if my kids have heard this story. The dollar bill stays in the Bible. He said, your granddaddy, one of his greatest fears is that he would show up at church and not have any money to give to his God. So he always kept a dollar in the Bible so that he could always be ready to honor his God. It's not a sermon about money, even though the text is about it. It's a sermon about being weird. It's a sermon about staying holy. It's a sermon about saying, you know what? God needs a holy people on this planet. He needs somebody who doesn't cave to the paganism around us, but stands for something that really matters. You are that people. We're that people. And just as those in Austin, Texas are proud to be weird, and those who wear cheese on their heads are proud of the Packers, we ought to be proud of the holiness of God. And if you've missed that calling, today's a good day to say, now I'm going to get back right. If we can help you with that, we've got people at the back of our auditorium or online with the click of a button who will counsel with you, disciple you, pray with you. So let's stand up and sing. And if we can help you, go to the back or click on that button. Let's stay, let's stay holy.